This evening's topic is the missing years of Jewish history. It's a topic that we must discuss at this point in time because we're dealing with the early era of Bayit Sheni, the Persian period uh, of rule over Eretz Israel, and there is a major controversy over the chronological uh, length of that Persian rule over Eretz Israel, with a big dispute between conventional historical uh, wisdom and the chronology used by rabbinic Judaism. This is a, a very famous controversy. A lot of ink has been spilled over it, including several books in recent years trying to uh, reconcile the two schools of thought. <coughs> so tonight I'll present both versions of what happened, and then uh, present what various Jewish scholars over the last thousand years thought of this discrepancy, and are there s- significant theological issues in play, or is it all a lot of narishkeit? That's the real question. Okay. So according to conventional wisdom, all the secular historians will tell you that the Neo-Babylonian Empire was founded by Nabopolosar and his son Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, after the Battle of Nineveh in the year 612 before the Common Era, or after the Battle of Carchemish in the year 605 before the Common Era. It's a question of how you want to define uh, the defeat of the Assyrians and the ascendancy of the Babylonians. It's a series of battles where the uh, Ashura Assyria is on the losing end and fades from history, and the Babylonians are on the ascendancy. All right. <coughs> so they're in control of the world, and they have several kings who have a run-in with the Jews. Nebuchadnezzar destroys the temple in the year 586 before the Common Era, And the Babylonian Empire is itself destroyed by Persian King Cyrus in the year 539 before the Common Era. Uh, The Persian Kingdom is destroyed by Alexander the Great in the year 331 at the Battle of Gagama. And the Persian period in Jewish history lasts 207 or 208 years. So, a little more than two centuries. The names of the Persian kings who lasted more than a few days, who weren't assassinated immediately, the ones who actually had some kind of a tenure, there were ten of them. Cyrus II, or Cyrus the Great, was 560 to 530. Cambyses was 530 to 522. Darius I, 522 to 486. He'll be an important person for Jewish history because under his watch, the temple was actually completed. Xerxes I, 486 to 465, who is arguably the Ahasuerus of the Purim story. Artaxerxes, 465 to 422. Darius II, 423 to 405. Artaxerxes II, 405 to 358. He lived a long time. Artaxerxes II, 358 to 338. The third, the fourth, 338 to 336. He didn't didn't last too long. And lastly, Darius III, 336 to 330, who is killed in battle uh, against the Macedonians, against the Greeks. So there are ten kings of the Persian line, the Achaemenid line, and they last over 200 years. That's the conventional history. Now we go to the Jewish version. And let's see where it differs. According to the Jewish version, as appears primarily in the Seder Olam, composed in the 2nd century by Rabbi Yossi ben Chalafta, a famous 4th century Tana, based upon earlier traditions and his own reckoning of the biblical chronology, according to the Jews... The Neo-Babylonian Empire was established in 433 before the Common Era. Jerusalem was destroyed in 422 before the Common Era. Darius the Mede, someone unknown to secular history, and Cyrus the Persian together destroy Babylonia in 370. Alexander defeats the Persians in 318, despite the fact that he died in 323, which means he was dead for five years. Um, And Persian period in Jewish history lasts only 52 years, of which 34 were during the era of the Second Temple. 
So, massive differences, major differences between the, the conventional wisdom and the Jewish version of events. Number one, the total number of years of Persian rule, 207-208 versus 52. Big, big difference. Uh, secondly, the total number of Persian monarchs. According to the conventional wisdom, there were ten. I rattled off their names. According to the Jews, there was Darius the Mede, Cyrus the Persian, <coughs> Ahasuerus, and Darius the Persian. Four kings and that's it. Uh, and lastly, the Jewish version has Darius II being the last Persian king, despite the fact that we have uh, plenty of evidence that there were many, many more to follow him. So these are the, uh, are the differences... Is it a problem? Does anyone really care that the rabbis of the the second century of the common era uh, differ from secular knowledge? I ask you, does it matter? In other words, maybe these are just the four kings that interfaced with the Jewish... Okay, so that's going to be one of the the, the classic answers that are given in the the pre-modern commentaries, or the early modern commentaries, as to why the sages thought these were the only kings. They were the only ones to interact with the Jews, the others being insignificant for our purposes, therefore we don't remember them. Okay, yeah. It wasn't recognized that there was a difference between the We're going to get to that. <coughs> yeah. One nothing. The good guys? All right. So, uh, the Seder Olam, let's just read what it says. Kol shnei malchei madayu paras. All the years of the uh, <coughs> the Medians and the Persians who ruled over Israel, Chamishim Ushtayim Shana, fifty-two years. Rabbi Yossi Omer, Malchut Paras Bivne Abayat Lamed Dalit Shana, that they ruled over Israel while the Temple stood for thirty-four years. Now, fifty-two minus thirty-four is eighteen. That means that for eighteen years, from the start of Persian rule, there was no Temple. Is that the case? Well, yes, we learned last week that Cyrus issued a proclamation allowing Jews to return to their homeland, and some did, but the vast majority did not, and that they had trouble building the temple because of interference from the Samaritans, from remnant Jews of, of the First Commonwealth, from the Ammonites and Moabites and Edomites, all the other nations who were causing trouble prevented the, the, the fast and quick building of the temple. So there was this 18-year gap, or maybe it was even 23 years, according to conventional wisdom, uh, before the temple was built. But for 34 years of the Second Temple period, the Persians were in control. Then what happened? Malchut Yavan Me'ushmonim. The Greeks were in control for 180 years. Malchut Beit Chashmonai Me'avishalosh. The Hasmoneans were in control for 103 years. Umalchut Hurdos Me'avishalosh. And the Herodians were in control for 103 years. So 103 plus 103 is 206. Plus 180 is 386. Plus 34 is 420. The second temple stood for 420 years, according to Jewish rabbinic reckoning. Okay, obviously according to the conventional wisdom of, of the secular historians, it lasted a lot longer, from roughly 516 uh, before the Common Era until the year 70 of the Common Era, so about 586 years. How much is the discrepancy? The discrepancy is in the ballpark of 165, 166 years. That's what we're talking about. They're known as the missing years. What happened to them? So, of course, according to the traditional viewpoint, they're not missing. They never existed. According to the, the secular historians, they're not missing. We know exactly what happened. The only, the only reason why we call them missing is because if you try to reconcile the two uh, forms of counting, there is this problem on our hands. Okay. Well, 
Is it just the Seder Olam who says that the Second Temple lasted 420 years and that the, 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 the Persians were only in control for a very brief time? Maybe the Seder Olam is not uh, widely respected in rabbinic thought. You could argue it's just an agotic work of chronology by one man whose opinion we could reject. If only it were so simple. Because in fact, the Talmud in five different places assumes that that chronology is 100% correct. Let's go to the sources. Gemara Yoma uh, 9a. Yirat Hashem Tosif Yamim. Those who fear God will have lengthy days. Zemik Dash Rishon. This refers to the first temple. Shiamad Abba Miot Veser Shanim. It stood 410 years. Veloshim Shubo Lashmonas Rekhanim Gedolim. There were only 18 high priests in 410 years during the first temple period. That means that every Kohen Gadol lasted a pretty long time. Uh, almost 25 years, a, a generation. Guy takes office. He serves for decades on end. That's pretty good. But, if you're wicked, what's going to happen? Shortness of days. How do we know this? Mikdasheni, the second temple. Shi'amad Abba Meos of Esrim Shanet stood 420 years. Vishimshu Boyosim Mishlosh Meos Kohanim, and there were more than 300 high priests. So the average high priest lasted how long? A year and a third. He dropped dead very quickly. Why did he die so soon? Alright, so the legend has it that he went on Yom Kippur and he did the Ketoris the wrong way and boom! He was nailed by lightning or, or the angel kicked him in the back of the head and he was dead. Well, you had the Sakari, then you had the there was a lot of death and mayhem in the second temple. So whether God got him or, someone, or a man got him, he was dead. The, <coughs> yes, there could be because you had the She'avar, people who previously served and were uh, rendered impure and thus couldn't hold office again. You had several people uh, simultaneously who held the rank of Kohen Gadol, even if they weren't functioning uh, simultaneously. But what's the point of this Gemara? The point of the Gemara is to say that there were a lot of high priests in the second temple, there weren't that many in the first temple, but both temples basically lasted the same, same amount of time, so they must have been good guys the first go-around and evildoers the second time around. For our purposes, what matters, the Gemara says the second temple lasted 420 years. And it's not, a, it's not in, in, uh, at all in doubt. Nobody's uh, questioning this in the Talmud. Okay, another source, Gemara in Erechin 12b, Mikadi Bayat Sheni Kamakam, how many years was the second temple? Abameos Vesvim, 420, another source. Avodazara 9a, quotes the, quotes the Seder Olam verbatim, about the 34 years under the Persians and the 180 under the Greeks and so on and so forth. And lastly, we have the Tosefta Zevach in chapter 13, Halacha 6, which tells us <coughs> a full chronology of the sacrificial service from its beginnings in the days of Moses all the way to the end. Let's read it. Yemei Ohel Moed Shabamidbar, the days of the tent of meeting in the wilderness, Arbaim Chaserachat, were 40 minus 1. Why 40 minus 1? Because we were in the wilderness for 40 years, and the Mishkan wasn't built until the second year, so 39 years. Fine. Vishabba Gilgal, and at Gilgal in the days of Joshua, Arba Esrei Shana, 14 years. 7 of, of conquest and 7 of distribution. Then, Bishilo, at the, at the tabernacle of Shiloh, Shlosh Meos Vishivim Chaserachat, 370 minus 1, so 369. Shebenov in Nov and Givon, which were temporary locations uh, in the days of King da- of, of, of Shmuel and King David, Chamishim uh, Besheva, 57 years. Beit Olamim, the first temple, the house of God, of, built by Solomon, Arba Meos Ve'eser, 410. 
and, and, the, and the Acharon, 420 for the second temple. So that's the standard rabbinic chronology of the days of Moshe Rabbeinu all the way to the destruction of the second temple by Titus. Nobody in rabbinic literature is disputing this. This is accepted. It's a canonical. Okay, the problem is that it's 100% wrong. Um, so let's, let's now see why the rabbis would have thought that the, way, the way that they did. So we have a pasuk in Daniel, chapter 9, verse 24. And Daniel is very cryptic, very, very cryptic. It uh, claims to be written by or about a figure named Daniel, who is uh, working in the court of the Babylonians and living in the 6th century before the Common Era. According to all the scholars, at least the last half of Daniel is written in the Maccabean period, roughly around the year 168 before the Common Era, and it knows with a great degree degree of precision the entire uh, Ptolemaic and Seleucid era, which we'll get to in a a couple of months. And it's not prophecy, but it's it's masquerading as prophecy, but looking back on a history that it actually knows for a fact. Okay, that said, let's read the Pasuk, 924. In the English, 70 weeks are decreed upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sin and to forgive iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal vision and profit and to anoint the most holy place. So, 70 weeks. How long is a week? Seven years. In, 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 the, in the Bible, so Shavua almost never refers to a week. It refers to a sabbatical cycle, seven years. So what's seven years times 70? 490 years. The interpretation of this pasuk is that from the destruction of the first temple to the destruction of the second temple will elapse 490 years, and it was a 70-year exile. So 490 minus 70 equals 420. Therefore, the second temple must have stood for 420 years. Okay, that is the most important line in scriptures that leads the sages to think that the temple lasted as long as it did. Okay, but there's another line. It's Daniel chapter 11, verse 2. Ata emet agid lecha, and now I will declare unto thee the truth. Behold, there shall stand up three kings in Persia. Um... And the fourth shall be far richer than they all. And when he is waxed strong through his riches, he shall stir up against the realm of Greece. So this verse talks about four kings ruling the world prior to the arrival of Greece on the scene. Which leads the, the rabbis to believe that there only were four Persian kings. Now, of course, your point is that maybe there are only four kings that are relevant to the Jews, but there could have been a whole lot more, in fact, who ruled somewhere in points east, who, don't, who are insignificant to Am Yisrael. But that's, that's the line in Daniel that leads the, chronolog- the, the chronologists of, of the rabbis to think that there were four kings. Okay, so who was the first to recognize a problem, that there, that there is this discrepancy? Sadiagon, in the 10th century, knew there was a discrepancy. 
but he blamed the Christian scholars for falsely elongating the Persian period so as to make Daniel chapter 9, verse 26 roughly fit the chronology of Jesus. What is Daniel 9, 26? Well, let's take a read. So it says in the Pasuk, and after three score and two weeks shall an anointed one be cut off. So after 62 sabbatical cycles, some really important person, an anointed one, a Mashiach, will be cut off and be no more. And the people of a prince that shall come shall destroy the, the city and the sanctuary, but his end shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. All right, the rest is very uh, apocalyptic. But the point is that after 62 sabbatical cycles, <coughs> roughly seven and a half cycles before the destruction of the temple, there will be a Mashiach who dies. So Sadia thought, I don't know when he thought Jesus actually lived because it doesn't work out according to we know, what we think Jesus died in the year 33. Um, but what he would have thought is that the Persian period had to be uh, extended deeper into the past so that when you get to the point when, when Yeshu was alive, it was only 62 sabbatical cycles since the previous destruction. I'm not even going to bother to speculate when that would have been because this is all ahistorical in nature. There's no point in trying to pin it down. Uh, but that's Saj's point. He says, we're right, the Goyim have another theory, and their theory is false, and intentionally so, because they're trying to manipulate the facts to fit their theology. That's Saj's point. Okay. It's a staunchly Jewish uh, theory. Well, what about Yosipon? Who is Yosipon? So it's the phony Josephus. It's pseudo-Josephus, written in the, in the 10th century by an unknown Jew, uh, uh, it's anonymously written, but ascribed to Josephus, and some of the, the Rishonim actually thought it was Josephus, but it wasn't. Uh, but his, his material wasn't all that bad. He knew that there was an accepted, that there was a protracted Persian period. He rejected the Seder Olam's chronology in favor of a longer uh, uh, Second Temple era. How long? He wasn't exactly sure. What about the Abarbanel? The Abarbanel was a student of secular history. In his commentary on Daniel, we know for sure that he was well-versed in all the, uh, the writings of the Church Fathers about the, uh, the, you know, the, the period of antiquity. And he gives a little bit. He budges. Sometimes you, know, you don't budge an inch. If you budge an inch, uh, if you, you'll, they'll take a mile. So, he, uh, so people don't want to move even an inch. But he's willing. He says there were many Persian kings, but they were before Cyrus before the conquest by the Persian Empire of Eretz Yisrael, and therefore irrelevant to the Jews, and so they were excluded from the Bible, and we didn't know about them. But it's not our fault. Then he says, the Persian period in Eretz Yisrael lasted 54 years, not 52, and the temple was around for 428 years, not 420. Are those numbers accurate? No, he's completely wrong also. But why is it relevant? Because here he's a big rabbi, big rabbi, well-respected, and is departing from the official party line. Only a little bit, but something, and something is, is, is significant. Okay. The major player in this whole discussion is Azaria de Rossi. Most of you have never heard of him. 
He was an Italian physician and rabbinic scholar. He lived in Mantua, 1513 to 1578, and he wrote a work, Maore Naim, Light of the Eyes, in which he prefigured the scientific study of, Judea, the, of Judaism, the Wissenschaft des Judentum of 19th century Germany. And he was using uh, academic standards by which to judge the past. And he exposed the errors of rabbinic chronology. But he did us a favor in that he speculated why the rabbis got it wrong. What was it that was prompting them to think that there were four Persian kings and, there were, and the temple lasted 420 years and only 34 years of the Persians and so on and so forth. Why did the rabbis get it wrong? So, reason number one, they wanted to assign a similar number of years to the first temple and to the second temple. So 410 the first time, 420 the second time. Uh, symmetry is good in, in, uh, in the writing of Jewish history. All right, that's a reasonable suggestion. Very reasonable. Point two. Daniel chapter 11, verse 2, which speaks about the four kings, implies a very short period. Because after all, how long does any one king last? I mean, how long does a king last? Queen Elizabeth has lasted a pretty long time, 60 years on the throne. But in the old days, people didn't last so long. So if there were only four kings, 52 years isn't a bad suggestion. Point three. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, which we read a few minutes ago, implies a 490-year period from the, from the first destruction to the second destruction. And assuming there really was a 70-year exile, so we're left with 420. Fourth reason. They knew that Minyan Shtarot was in the year 380 when the temple was destroyed, and that the Greeks came to Eretz Yisrael approximately six years before the Minyan Shtarot. What is Minyan Shtarot? So some of you have heard of it, others not. It's the counting of, doc, of uh, uh, the reckoning of, of years for document purposes. We now use Libria Sa'olam, Anno Mundi, from the creation of the world. I just officiated a wedding last Sunday, so I wrote out the ketubah, Labria Sa'olam, Laminion Shanamonim Khan, Westchester, wherever. So we count the years from the creation of the world. That's not, uh, that has not been in place from time immemorial. That's only been done for the last roughly 1,500 years. Before that, there was a different system. It was the Shtarot. Documents are dated according to this system. It was the Seleucid system, starting in roughly the year 312 before the Common Era. 312 before the Common Era. And uh, that being true, in right around the year 380, the temple was destroyed. What's the system based on? It was based upon the Seleucid calendar, that the Jewish calendar basically was the same as the Seleucid calendar. However... For the purposes of Bria Sa'olam, and for making the Jewish reckoning sound very impressive, 312 was actually a good year to pick, because according to uh, our uh, counting, it was exactly a thousand years after what major event? Yetzias Mitzrayim and Matan Torah, in the year 1312 before the Common Era, according to, Se- to Seder Olam reckoning. So in, in the year 2448, by our standards, temple, uh, Exodus from Egypt, giving of the Torah, a thousand years later, Minyan Shtarot, the beginning of a new system of, of reckoning. Okay, so 
they wanted that to work out, therefore the temple must have existed X number of years. Okay, the, the last point is that there, there may have been a tradition, so says de Rossi, that Simon the Righteous, Shimon HaTzadik, was the high priest who officiated immediately after Yehoshua ben Yehotzadak, Joshua, of the book of Ezra Nehemiah. That he was the next high priest in the line, and he met Alexander the Great, so the legend goes. So if he met Alexander the Great, and he's a direct successor of Yehoshua ben Yehotzadak, it must be that the Persian period didn't last very long, because one guy was the high priest that whole time, and then was followed by a guy who met Alexander. So, very short period. Okay. But as de Rossi then says, the rabbis, having pinned themselves into a corner, uh, chronologically speaking, were then forced to ignore contradictory evidence that appears in the Chemia chapter 12, which has a long line of high priests who served in the Second Temple period after Yehoshua, predating Shimon HaTzadik, whose name doesn't appear in the Bible. His name appears in Ben Sira, written in the year 190, as having been like one of the greatest of the high priests, but Shimon HaTzadik is not in our Tanakh. So how could it be that there was a long line of, of, of a dozen high priests or more functioning after Yehoshua, before Simon the Righteous, and yet that whole period of time lasted 34 years? Can't be. M- must be. It was a much longer period of time. And yet the rabbis can't acknowledge that because they're, they're, they're stuck to that 420 number. That was later when they were corrupt. In the beginning, assuming that they were righteous and you know uh, functioning in the right, in proper capacity, they might have, they would have lasted a lot longer. Okay, so then De Rossi suggests that the rabbis left out parts of Persian history because if it's not in the Bible and we can't be certain about it, we have to re- rely upon the Talmudic principle of tafasta maruba lo. Tafasta. If you grab too much, you grab nothing. So since we don't really know the other uh, the, the other uh, Persian kings or the extra years about which Jewish history is sort of silent, since we don't know about that stuff, and the Gentiles are saying it happened, it didn't happen, who knows, we should just stick to what we know. Whatever's in the Tanakh, that's what we'll say happened. Alternatively, De Rossi suggests, the dispersion, the galut, caused the Jews to lose accurate historical traditions. Now that's a very important point, because it makes sense, but it's not so pleasant a thing to say, because after all, other nations of the world, whose, uh, maybe whose IQ is not always uh, seen as being as good as ours, have better traditions than we do about our own history. And that's kind of sad. But as we shall see soon enough, the, the rabbis were, and, and early Jewry were, were, were not concerned with history. It wasn't a, a pastime of ours. It wasn't a, an intellectual endeavor that was meaningful. Okay, so maybe we lost something over the years. And his evidence that we lost th- something is that a, even in the Seder Olam, authored by Yossi ben Chalafta, sometimes Yossi himself will uh, disagree with the information that he brings down. There'll be like a Tanakama and then a Rabbi Yossi. But if Rabbi Yossi is the author, why is Rabbi Yossi arguing with the Tanakhama? doesn't make much sense. Answer is, he had some traditions, but he didn't necessarily think that they were right. Okay, that's, uh, that's also a key point. You have a, an author disagreeing with his own work. Um, so where did he get his information from? As de Rossi will claim, from fallible sources, fallible Jewish and Gentile sources. Fallible. Later on, we'll see the fundamentalist Jews don't like that idea of fallible sources. Okay, 
Let's now move to the more modern period. Nachman Krachmal, in, in the 19th century, who is the author of a very important work called Mora Nevuche Hazman. The, the Rambam wrote Mora Nevuchim. Krachmal wrote Mora Nevuche Hazman which was uh, like a manifesto for the Eastern European Haskalah, that people who were traditional Jews who wanted to be traditional believers but had questions about the, you know, the, 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 the uh, historical beliefs of rabbinic Judaism, he was trying to answer their questions. So he says that there must have been a longer period of the Second Temple and of the Persian period, and he gives an interesting proof. He says if you go to Pirkei Avos, the first Mishnah, uh, and we learned this a couple years ago here, First Mishnah has Moshe, followed by Yoshua, Zekanim, Nevi'im, Anshe Knesset HaGedola. Second Mishnah has Shimon HaTzadik HaYamisharei Knesset HaGedola. Simon the Righteous is one of the last, uh, the remnant of the Great Assembly. <coughs> and then, the third Mishnah has who? Antignosh Is Soho Kibel Mishimon HaTzadik. Antigonus of Soho, received from Simon the Righteous. So Krachmal says... How do you have a rabbi named Antigonus? A real Goyesh nomen. How could that be? It must be, he says, there was a long period of assimilation that predated his generation. And yet if you claim that Simon the Righteous met Alexander and the Persian period was very short, there basically was no time for assimilation. That we go right from you know, the returnees and Ezra uh, to Antigonus a few years later. So he says this is absurd. It must be that Antigonus was a couple of hundred years after the, the return to Zion, and that the Second Temple period is a lot longer than we think it is. Right, that's that's Krachmal's interesting uh, uh, proof text. Uh, Moses Zuckermandel, who you never heard of, but wrote the uh, but was the the compiler of the first critical edition of the Tosefta before Saul Lieberman did it. Zuckermandel did it in the early 1900s. He said that the Persian period was so uneventful that it ended up being forgotten. And the theory was that it must have been a really short period of time because we don't think that anything happened. So how could it be that there were 200 years of boredom? No way. So the rabbis figured it was only 52 years since nothing happened. Now, that might sound like a ridiculous suggestion, but it's not so ridiculous. Because truth be told, that assuming that the conventional wisdom is right, the Persian period really was 208 years, what happened at that time? It's a dark period. We don't, we don't know all that much. We don't have that many primary sources that speak of the events of that period. There were many books of the Bible that were authored at that time or redacted at that time in the Nevi'im and Ketuvim. So first of all, almost all the Megillahs, uh, the ones that are attributed to Shlomo HaMelech were written in the days of the Persians. And much, the Nevi'im was canonized. Much, much of the Ketuvim is written in the days of the Persians. But it's not telling the history of that period. It's wisdom literature. Wisdom literature, okay, it could have been written 5,000 years ago, it could have been written yesterday. It doesn't talk about history. So we don't know what happened at that time. We just have, you know, literary output. But could be it was a short period of time. No, nothing happened, uneventful. Okay. Then, another theory is that the desire to claim that the Mishnah was, was redacted at the end of the era of Torah caused the rabbis to finesse the chronology in the hopes of having widespread acceptance of the Mishnah. Whoa, that's a mouthful there. What is the era of Torah? So there are three epochs in Jewish history. There's creation, Torah, and Mashiach. 2,000 years of creation. So Adam Arishon through Avraham. Avraham born in 1948, like the state of Israel. Okay, Anomundi, 1948. 
And that's 2,000 years. Then you have 2,000 of Torah, of Yitzhiyas uh, Mitzrayim, Matan Torah, the Nevi'im, so on and so forth. And then ending with the Mishnah. And then 2,000 years when Mashiach could come. And by the year 6,000, it's all over. Global woman, we're all dead. So, when was the Mishnah released to the public? When was it redacted? 250 AD. So, sometime in the early part of the 3rd century, a little bit before 250, because Rebbe died in 219, so we think. And he is credited with, with uh, being the, uh, uh, the, the redactor or the, ed- the editor. So, probably around the year 220, the Mishnah is available to the public. When is the year 4000, according to the Seder Olam, according to rabbinic chronology? In the year 240 of the Common Era. So at the end of the 2000 years of Torah, which ends in the year 4000 of, of our reckoning, Briya Sa'olam, the Mishnah is out there. So Torah Shabbat is out there, and Torah Shabbat And so, although this is inaccurate, the rabbis wanted to portray it that way to make it seem as though this is the end of Torah. The Mishnah is the be-all and end-all of Torah. Okay. Joseph Tabori was a professor at Barilan, made the following suggestion. The sages uh, erroneously uh, thought that the last Persian king mentioned in the Bible was the last Persian king overall. That's one idea. Then he says that the sages may have felt, historiographically speaking, that's a fancy word, that the Persian influence on Judaism was minimal, and therefore it was unlikely that the, the, uh, the era of contact between Persian civilization and Jewish civilization would have lasted all that long. That the Greeks had a much greater influence on our thinking, so the Greek period is pretty, pretty long, several centuries. But the Persians, where is there a, any relationship between Zoroastrianism and, and Judaism? Not much. So therefore it must have been a short period of time. Now the problem with that theory, of course, is that there's plenty of uh, overlap between Zoroastrianism and Judaism. Uh, we reject, you know, the dark and light gods of Hurab Mazda Ariman. We have, uh, you know, Melech Baruch who is Shem Echad one God. But when it comes to angelology and eschatology and Tchias uh, Amesim, uh, notions of Olam Haba, a lot of stuff which doesn't appear in the Torah and may not have been a part of the theology of ancient Judaism is part of our belief system and is very similar to the Persian system. So this theory uh, I tend to reject because there's, there's a lot of overlap with, with, with Persian culture. Okay. Uh, but then we have to turn to those who defend the tradition. There were many people who quite vigorously defended rabbinic chronology and claimed that the Jewish sages are infallible, like the Pope, even in non-halachic matters, even on matters that don't seem to have great uh, weight. Uh, Judaism doesn't rise and fall on, on this issue of the chronology of the Second Temple, yet nonetheless, you have to have a munas chachamim, belief in what the sages say, that they can't be wrong. Yeah? You keep saying not much time. Is Purim not considered a, uh, an event? Okay, so Purim is a separate matter that we discussed a couple of years ago in the, in, the, uh, in the holiday lectures. It's very difficult to, to discuss Purim in a Jewish history class for reasons that we can't go into in any great depth. But the bottom line is that the story of the Megillah uh, has no basis in, tradi- in secular history. We, we have to be honest about it. It doesn't. Every attempt to try to uh, force it into some uh, Persian king's uh, reign, whether Xerxes, Artaxerxes, usually falls flat. 
is there an is there a kernel of historical truth in it? Yeah, probably. There may have been a, a bad guy who was uh, who was an anti-Semite, who was a grand vizier, who wanted to kill the Jews, and there may have been a plot that was foiled. But we can't place it anywhere. The tradition places Achashverosh before the, the the building of the second of the second temple. Well, before the building of the second temple, who was the king? Cyrus, Cambyses and then Darius the Persian. Darius the Persian allowed the building of the temple in 520 to 516. Achashverosh was king in the 480s to 460s. The temple was already built. So all the midrashim about, the, about how the temple wasn't built yet, and so on and so on, that's, that's, that can't be accepted as, as historical fact. What you might want to accept is that there was a plot to kill the Jews. That it could have happened at any time. We just don't know when. But that's still during the Persian period. They're saying that. Yeah, yeah, okay, so... but. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yes. Right. So, so. Okay. So, so that's absolutely correct. Uh, it's a quiet period of time because. As we'll see in the next lectures, the theocratic state under the Kohen Gadol functioned very well in uh, Yehuda Medinata, the province of, uh, of Judah, of Yehud, for generation after generation, because the Persians didn't interfere. Life was good, which further complicates the, the, the Purim story, because it's totally at odds with what we know about Persian-Jewish relations, that they were good, not bad. So well, that's have, we'll have to leave that out, basically. It's no, you're not going to hear about Purim or Megillah Sester again in this, in this course. Yeah. As far as the secular uh, historians, yes. chronology, what written, what written documentation, <coughs> especially from non-Jewish sources, is there? That <coughs> okay, the Greek writers, from Herodotus on down. Um, it's, it's most, so most of it was, 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 was Greek historical writing. That satisfied... You know the the scholars from the third century BCE up until the nineteenth century of the Common Era, and then with the advent of modern archaeology, we find cuneiform tablets and, what, and other real uh, uh, artifacts from the Babylonian and Persian periods, verifying a lot of the stuff that the Greek writers wrote. That yes, there were X number of kings, and this this is what happened under their period and under their watch. And, and uh, we know a lot about what happened between five eighty six and 331 with Alexander. We know a lot. A lot more than, than appears in the Bible, and a lot more than the rabbinic authors ever knew. They couldn't have known. They, they didn't live at the same time. Okay, so <clears throat> let's now go to those who defend the tradition. They would argue that, aside from the infallibility of the rabbis, there is an inherent Greek anti-Semitism that makes their historical records always suspect. There's a truth to that. Yes, the, the, the Greek writers, for the most part, didn't like Jews. From the days of Manetho in Egypt, all the way uh, down through the, the Latin writers of the 1st and 2nd century. And last year, we discussed some of those writers who believed that the Jews were guilty of, of donkey worship and all sorts of... Uh, uh, that they were guilty of the... Of, um, what's it called? Uh, not theocide, that's Christian, but they were guilty of xenophobia and uh, hatred of man. Um, all sorts of sins were, were, uh, were attributed to the Jews. So yes, the Greek writers sometimes had an axe to grind, but they also wrote good works. Okay, so who said that the Jewish version is correct? 
Well, David Gans, who was a 16th century Jewish scholar, uh, in 1592 wrote a work, Tzemach David, and he wrote the following. We shall not, as good believing Jews, uh, accept the writings of those who are not from B'nai Israel. Simple as that. Good old Jewish pride. We say one thing, they say another thing. We'll go with our version of events. Good Jewish pride. What about the Maharal? So the Maharal has an interesting uh, comment. He says that the Rossi is wrong. He knew what the Rossi had to say. And that the, the numbers 410 and 420 are Kabbalot. They're received traditions of our sages. Then he says this, listen, it's bad enough that the Rossi and others are quoting Gentile scholars. That's, that's a big enough sin to begin with. But it's still worse to quote the Bible against the sages. That's a bigger Avera. Why is that a bigger Avera? Because if you quote the Bible against the sages, number one, it's like a chutzpah that you can read the Bible better than they could. But also, lo sasuru, don't depart from the sages, have to say. But also it means that the, the, that the Tanakh is available as a primary source in the study of history without regard for what the tradition has to say about it. In other words, unfettered access to the Bible. No religion, no ecclesiastical hierarchy ever wants to allow unfettered access to the Bible, to the lay people, to the common man. It always has to be as interpreted by the, the religious establishment. So, Maral says that's a terrible thing. Okay, Yaakov Emden in 1757 wrote Mipachat which is a great work, and if you can, if you can get through the, uh, the Talmudic uh, Hebrew, I suggest it. If you're able to read uh, you know, primary sources, get yourself a, a, a PDF of Mipachat It's an gr- unbelievable work in which uh, Emden is one of the early scholars to acknowledge that Shem Yochai didn't write the Zohar. Um, and he says the following, Hashem Yatzilenu, God should save us, Midat HaChitzonim, from the opinions of the outsiders, HaMosifim HaRbev Minyan Malchei Paras, who add years to the, the Persian period, Umarichim Shnotehem Ma'od, their hands and feet shall not be found in the house of study. Because perforce, they will have to contradict the scriptures. Meaning, if you disagree with the Seder Olam, you're probably going to have to dis- disagree with the Tanakh too. Because, in fact, the Tanakh's version of history is not that far off from what the Seder Olam says. And that the, the, the secular historians who add many years speak of other kings who are not mentioned in the Bible. So, you have a real problem on your hand. If you're going to go with the Chitzonim, you're going to go against the Bible. Then we have the Chazonish in 1953. The years of the Second Temple are known to us with assurity from the words of the sages. It is incumbent upon a man to chase away from his heart uh, these uh, skeptical uh, thoughts. And praiseworthy is the one who never read outside literature. In other words, just read your Chumash and your Gemara and, and leave, it, uh, leave it alone. Don't, don't, don't worry about this issue. Now that's to be expected from the Haredi Gedol of the 20th century. Don't get involved with complicated historical matters. Just uh, follow the traditional curriculum and you'll be okay. All right. So th- those were the ones who say that the Jewish version is right. Then there are others... Who, don't, who, who would of course agree that the Jewish version is correct, 
but don't even bother to mention uh, the discrepancy with conventional uh, history. They just say the Jewish version. So, for example, the Malbim in the 19th century, uh, Victor Miller in the 20th century, uh, Zlatowicz, Art Scroll, doesn't bother to, uh, to mention that there's a problem. It just goes straight with the Seder Olam chronology. And Zechariah Fendel, if you know, he had those, those volumes of Jewish history, which follow Seder Olam straight through. And basically, you can't read them because it's completely wrong. I mean, it's, it's nice that, that he puts it out, but it's, 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 it's worthless because it's incorrect. Uh, then you have those who say that both theories are right, both the conventional wisdom and the, the rabbinic chronology. For example, Jacob Lauterbach, who was a professor at Hebrew Union College in the 1930s, he tried to, to squeeze both systems into uh, one workable uh, chronology, and Steinsaltz, which is an interesting uh, phenomenon, because Steinsaltz is always looking over his right shoulder. Since he's an orthodox figure, a major Talmudist, a major scholar, one of the, the, the brightest in the world, but... Ever since the 1970s, he's been criticized for whether he changed the Surah Sadaf of the Gemara, or he did this wrong, this Avera, that Avera. All sorts of intellectual Averas are, are, are thrown on Steinsaltz's head by the, by the far right. And so for him to accept the notion that the temple was destroyed in 586 and, and, and uh, completely accept uh, secular chronology, they'd put him in Chayrim. They'd, they'd, they'd even kick him further out of the rabbinical union. So he has to uh, throw a bone to the traditionalists and say, oh, the Seder Olam got it right. So he plays it from both ends. Then there were those who don't bother um, to mention the Jewish version. They uh, simply say that... Um, the secular histori- they, they simply give the secular historians dates, 586 for the destruction of the first temple, 516 for the building of the second temple, 538 for Cyrus' declaration, 331 Alexander conquers uh, Israel. They don't worry about the Jewish version. They just give the secular version. Who are these people? Joseph Hertz, the Hertz Chumash. Why? Why does the Hertz Chumash not even bother mentioning the, the, the Seder Olam's chronology? What was the agenda of the Hertz Chumash in the 1930s? It was a, a apologetics. It was designed to provide Anglo Jewry with a Bible, that, with a chumash that they could use in shul, that an enlightened and, and, and university educated Jew could respect, because it offered uh, traditional commentaries and uh, some Christian commentaries and modern, uh, not necessarily orthodox Jewish scholarship. In the uh, essays in the back of each book, he has uh, all sorts of um, apologetics rejecting documentary hypothesis and uh, any questioning of the Mosaic authorship of the Torah. So it's, it's staunchly orthodox. It's very orthodox in the, in the doxy sense. It's, it, the doctrinally, it's orthodox. But in flavor and in style, it's modern and enlightened. That was his goal. Okay, He can't do that if he says the temple was destroyed in 423, all right, the people at Oxford and Cambridge would laugh him out of the building. If he said that, 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 that Nebuchadnezzar was alive in 423, you can't say that and be taken seriously. Because bottom line is Nebuchadnezzar wasn't alive in 423. He was alive in 586. So that's his hurts. Then you have Isaac Halevi. Who is Isaac Halevi? What did he write? Isaac Halevi was the, the Doris Arishonim. The Doris Arishonim was written in around 1902. 
and it was designed to counter Dor Dor Vador Shav, written by Isaac Hirsch Weiss in the 1880s. Isaac Hirsch Weiss was a professor at the Jewish Theological Seminary of Vienna, and was a sort of a positive historical figure in Judaism, meaning like a forerunner of conservative Judaism, like Solomon Schechter, uh, uh, Zechariah Frankel, that style of Judaism. And he wrote a history of the tradition from, from the days of, of Moses on down, in which uh, he said things that were not so orthodox. And Isaac Halevi, a, a, a Polish Jew with a long beard, but yet uh, secondly educated, wrote a counterwork, Doris Rishonim, to give the Frum version of the history of tradition. But even in the Frum version of the history of tradition, he can't say that Nebuchadnezzar was alive in 423. Why not? Because he wasn't. He was alive in 586. He, there are certain things that the, that the rabbinic chronology tells you you just have to reject because it simply ain't so. So that's the Isaac Halevi, a very Frum guy, with beard down to the floor, but he says 586. Then Yitz Greenberg, Shlomo Riskin, Emanuel Rackman, Louis Bernstein, and Haskell Luckstein. Who cares? Are these big names in the history of the, of the Jewish people? Well, they are today. All right? and some of them are very respected uh, living rabbis. Why do I mention them? Only because an American Orthodox rabbi who wants to be taken seriously as a man of letters or as a writer of any kind, again, can't say that Nebuchadnezzar was alive in 423 because he wasn't. So mainstream, modern Orthodox rabbis have just rejected the chronology of the Seder Olam. It's simply not correct. Okay, in the 1980s, uh, there was an attempt made to take all the knowledge that we have of, uh, of history, and I don't mean we meaning the Jews and the, the, the rabbis, I mean even the, the, the scholarship of the world, take all the knowledge we have about the Persian kingdom, the Babylonian kingdom, the Assyrian kingdom, and try to nonetheless compress all that information into the 52 years of the Persian period claimed by the Seder Olam. By the way, what's the score? Two, one, Murphy, then home run. All right, there we go. <laughs> so this was done by Chaim Chefetz, not Chafetz Chaim, Chaim Chefetz, in the 1980s. He was a rabbi and a lawyer living in Israel, but not a Jewish uh, 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 scholar, not a historian by trade. And he wrote an article in Hebrew called Malchut Madayu Paras Bitkufat which means the, the kingdom of Media and Persia in the days of the Second Temple and before. He tried to compress it all into 52 years. How did he do it? By claiming that uh, the Babylonians and the Persians were actually uh, around at the same time, and one was a vassal king of the other flip-flopping back and forth depending upon generations. So this way you don't have Nebuchadnezzar in a, in, in a different era from Koresh, you can have him simultaneously alive. And that's uh, you know, a, a nice effort on this guy's part to write a 30-page article, but it's all bunk, and it was discredited completely. It was totally unscientific. So why was it done? It was done because somebody had to take up the cudgels of doctrinal orthodoxy, that uh, we can't let the Goyim win, or the secular Jews win. Somehow, some way, we have to defend our tradition, not just the halachic tradition, but the chronological tradition. And, uh, and this Chaim Chefetz did his best. But, very unconvincing. So in essence, what you're saying <coughs> is you don't want to let the facts get in the way of your belief. Correct. So, Shimon Schwab, Rabbi Shimon Schwab, who was the rabbi of, of, of the Kaladis Yeshurun, Breuers, uh, in the 1960s, came up with an interesting theory. Interesting theory. He said... The sages intentionally misled us 
regarding the second temple chronology, lest we try to figure out the end of days. Now, now, before you reject it right away, let's just assess whether it has any merits. In the Gemara, we find many times uh, a warning not to be mechashev to calculate the end of days. Why? Because, number one, you're likely to get it wrong. And if you get it wrong, you'll be disheartened and discouraged and you'll lose faith. But more importantly than that, if you're a, a prominent figure who makes a calculation and you get it wrong, and a thousand people believed you, their faith is, is uh, diminished in the process. So we don't want big rabbis who are generally speaking respected and revered as authoritative figures who know what they're talking about to get these sorts of things wrong. So therefore, don't do it. Don't do it. Now, that said, did people do it? Of course they did it. When you're in Golis and the Goyim are bludgeoning us in every which way possible, people need a Nechama. They need consolation. They want to know that the Golis is going to be over soon. There's a light at the end of the tunnel and that that end of the tunnel is not that far away. So, all sorts of theories were thrown around in the, in the, in the Amoraic period about when the, the, the Galut will come to an end and the Mashiach will come. Despite the warnings and despite it being dangerous. Okay. So, if we go to Daniel, book, uh, chapter 12, verse 4, the following pasuk we have. V'ata Daniel, setom ha-divarim, v'chatom ha-sefer, ad eight case. But thou, O Daniel, shut up thy words, meaning keep quiet, conceal things, and seal the book, even to the time of the end. In other words, make your book, whatever it is that you're writing, your book of prophecies or, or apocalyptic visions, make it uh, blurry or opaque, I mean, vague. Make sure that the person reading it doesn't really know what they're reading. This way, although you have revealed some secret about the end, no one will really know what it, what it says. That's the book of Daniel. So Shemur Schwab says the rabbis knew the correct chronology, but they were afraid if we could understand the apocalyptic visions of Daniel and have an idea of when the end will come, and we actually knew what, what year we were in right now, then we would have knowledge we're not supposed to have, secret wisdom. So to prevent that, aside from the, the, the vagueness of Daniel's prophecies, we also don't even know what year we're in. Because we're off by some, uh, some random number that uh, the sages didn't want us to know. Except that we found out because the secular historians told us what it was. Okay, now, uh, this was uh, said in 1962. Um, a proof... Did you have that in the Right, that, that nistaka hemenoshchina, that the, the divine presence left him, and he, and he couldn't he couldn't reveal that which he wanted to to say. Correct, correct. So, the, there's a gematria that tends to support this uh, theory. Sod Daniel. What is the gematria of Sod Daniel? So Samach is sixty. Sod, so seventy. And Daniel, we have uh, Daniel D is four. 54, 64, 65, uh, 95, plus 70 is 165. So, so Daniel is 165, there are 165 missing years. How do you like that? Gematri games. Okay, but, so then, uh, Shimon Schwab said, we're in fact a lot closer to the year 6000, which is the end of the world, than originally thought. 
So Mashiach is on his way. It's a very comforting message that uh, we're near the end. I mean, it's not so comforting. Before the Cubs will ever win a World Series. So, but later, but later, later he, uh, Rabbi Schwab supposedly retracted this theory. Why did he retract the theory? Because if the number of years that we have, Libria Saolam, is inaccurate, by some measure, whether 165 or 164, 3, 2, what, but if it's, if it's inaccurate, then we have a halachic problem. What? What's that halachic problem? Huh? Shemitah. Shemitah and Yovil, exactly. That the Shemitah and Yovil is based upon our current count. That the Shemitah is uh, every year divisible by seven. Okay, so truth be told, it's not a problem. Because even the Shemitah is not based upon the number of the Briya Sa'olam being divisible by seven. It's based upon a tradition dating back to the Rambam that this is, what, this is the Shemitah year, even though, according to his own calculation, it shouldn't be, he said, we follow whatever we're practicing. So this is the Shemitah year, every seventh year is the Shemitah year, not because the Briya Sa'olam is divisible by seven. So Rav Schwab supposedly retracted his theory as being only a suggestion because of concerns for halakhic uh, problems that actually aren't even halakhic problems. Okay, so that, 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 that's enough about um, attempts to, to, to reconcile, to explain uh, how we, we went wrong. What's my opinion? Yeah, question. 5776, who's, uh, who's uh, number? Okay, so 5776, where does Libriya Solom come from? Um, it's, it's based upon, well, it, it wasn't in use until about the 4th century of the Common Era. The Gemara Navodazara has one spot where it says what year it is, according to the, 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 the version of, of counting that we use today. Other than that, it never has Libriya Olam. Rabbinic literature just doesn't have it. It has Luminian Shtaros, the older count, the Seleucid count. Okay, so if you take the Seder Olam and its version of when Bias Shani was destroyed and an accurate, number, uh, an accurate reckoning of the number of years since the destruction of the Second Temple, someone along the way figured out what year it was. Meaning, in the days of Yosef and Chalafta, when he's writing this book, he knows what year it is according to Briya Olam because he figured it out. And going forward, we'll follow that count. However, it's actually a little bit more complicated because there's a two-year discrepancy between the original version and what we have today. The original version of Seder Olam had Adam HaRishon um, being, uh, well, Chafhei uh, Elul uh, being the first day of creation in the year one. And Adam HaRishon being born on Rosh Hashanah of the year 2. Um, but later, um, it, be- it became that the creation was the year 0. Makes sense. Which makes a lot more sense. So there's a two-year discrepancy between the original version and our version, which explains uh, 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 an error that appears in a lot of the Orthodox publications, where they say that the temple was destroyed in the year 68. You ever see that? That the temple was destroyed in 68, not the year 70? Why does it say 68? Because according to Seder Olam's version, that the year, the, the, the year Libriyas Olam was the year that we would call the year 68. But because of this two-year discrepancy, because of the other Marishon business, it actually was the year 70. That has been corrected uh, subsequently. So our 5776 is uh, an extra two years um, from the original rabbinic chronology. When that... Uh, uh, 
that mistake was rectified, I, I don't I don't actually know. No one's really sure. But it happened somewhere along the way. Okay. Also true. <coughs> now, what's my, my interpretation of all these facts? Uh, until now, I've, gi- I've given everybody else's this interpretation. Is huh? This is the only thing I can. Yeah. So, m- the way I look at it, the Gemara has in several places a, a statement, my dahava hava. What does that mean? What was, was. That's the attitude of the rabbis about the past. The Torah says, Remember the days of old. Okay, we have an obligation to know about the past, to, remember, to, to know the history. And yes, since the 19th century, Jews have been good about that. Most historians are Jews of, of, of any subject, let alone our own history. But for a long, long time, we didn't care about it. It wasn't on our minds. All right, until uh, Marcus Yost in the, in the 1830s wrote a, a history of the Jews... Uh, there was none since Josephus. That's 1,800 years where nobody wrote anything. Why? We didn't care. We learned halacha. We learned uh, the agarita. When we, wa- we, when we were too uh, stressed out uh, to learn serious legal minutia, we studied the medrash. But did we study history? No. Who read the Seder Olam cover to cover? Almost nobody. Why, does, why was the Seder Olam written? Because one Tana, Yossi ben Chalafta, actually cared. And his father, Chalafta, also had this antiquarian interest. But the other Tanoim, it wasn't of, of any importance to them. So they didn't preserve traditions. And when they had to figure out the chronology of the Bible, they did their best. But it's not that they really knew anything. So, Madahava Hava, what was, was, nobody in the rabbinic uh, uh, camp was really preserving accurate records of the early Second Temple period, 500 years before they were born, how were they supposed to know? So I completely reject any suggestion, like Rav Schwab, that they intentionally obscured things. They didn't intentionally obscure anything. They tried their best, or rather the handful of people who cared enough tried their best to read the the, the Bible and give us a chronology. It was as good as they could do, but it wasn't 100% accurate. And as for the fact that the, the later historians knew better, that's the nature of things. We build upon, you know, we, we're on the steps, we're, we're, we're midgets on the, the, the shoulders of giants. So knowledge increases over the generations, and we know better than they did a long time ago, simply because that's the way the world works. So we shouldn't w- obsess over it, we shouldn't worry about it. We don't need a munas chachamim on chronology, we need a munas chachamim on a very limited uh, aspect of Judaism, on the halacha, and maybe occasionally on moral issues, but not on matters of history or number games in, 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 the, in the record books. Well, that will stop.